Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, my name is Chris Calzi, and I'm so glad you are here. Uh, happy Memorial Day. Um, I want to tell you about uh, an exciting offer that I got this week, uh, one that uh, has been potentially amazing. So I got an email earlier this week from a lady named Caroline who's like, hey, we're downsizing, and we have um, a Steinway baby grand piano we want to get rid of, um, and this is it. And uh, we're looking for someone to take it. And you need to know, like, on my bucket list, um, you know, I don't know about when you picture yourself and kind of like whatever that season is, when things are easier, when you're not exhausted, um, when, uh, you know, life is like, ah. Um, in my head, when I picture it, I'm sitting at the piano and I'm just playing songs for hours, right? Do I know how to play the piano? No, um, which is only one part of the barrier that I have to get a, a past. So naturally, it's like get a piano, learn how to play it, play for hours. And so in my head, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is bucket list life realization happening right here. And um, she's like, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. We'd love to give it to you. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I mean, this is a very expensive piano. So I respond back and say, hey, Caroline, I am so sorry I was, I was out of town. Um, is this piano still available? And she's like, yes, it is. And I'm like, "Woo!" you know, like high five universe, high five. I am winning. And then she said, where are you located? Which I thought was kind of a strange question because you emailed me and, and I happened to be emailing back from my work address from the church. And which has in my email signature the address of the church. So I'm like, what do you mean, where am I located? I was like, you emailed me, Caroline. Who, like, what is the deal? And then I started to think about it and realized that Caroline sounded really familiar, like a name that sort of maybe was a person who once attended here because throughout the pandemic we've had so many people who've moved and so, you know, it, like everything about it made sense, but then it didn't. And I realized that Caroline wasn't Caroline. I don't know who Caroline is, but this definitely is not her piano. In fact, just a quick reverse image search shows that the picture of the piano was actually a screen grab from an auction site from something back in 2018 in Connecticut. And so I did what anyone would do. I responded, thanks, Caroline. Your house looks amazing. How do I get the piano? Which set up a whole email chain that I've been having with Caroline this week. Why? Because I was so mad that Caroline ripped my heart out. But I was also slightly frustrated because I know that Caroline whoever she or he may be, um, is sending out millions of these emails and that there is someone, unfortunately, on the other end who's going to follow it to the end. So I wanted to rip their heart out the way they ripped it, my heart out. So, Caroline, how do I get this piano? I've got a truck. I will get there right now. By the way, can't wait to see your house. Caroline responds, oh, sorry, we've already moved. It's already with the shipping company. Here's their contact information. Reach out to Russell at Seahorse Logistics. 
So I reach out to Russell at Seahorse Logistics because Seahorse Logistics has a website. They must be real, right? According to their website, they have a beautiful downtown headquarters in Knoxville, Tennessee, one that quickly Google search will realize is a building filled with a lot of different businesses, none of them being Seahorse Logistics. And on top of all that, the phone number for the U.S. is a British number. And it's in broken English, and the images on Seahorse Logistics website is unfortunately really bad stock photos that they just pulled from the website that still have the watermark on them. But did that stop me? No. Me and Russell, we had to talk. Because I know the end game. The end game is they're going to send me an invoice that I need to pay in order to get the piano. And now it's, of course, going to be paid in untraceable, unrefundable dollar bills. But unfortunately, we haven't got there. As of this morning, me and Russell are going back and forth on the, which shipping frame I would like to choose. And I'm very enthusiastic about getting the piano. I can't wait. I've offered multiple times to come to pick it up from Russell, and Russell has to apologize. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's already in our storage unit. We'll unfortunately have to be the one to deliver it to you. Um, I, my next email to Russell is going to comment on his headquarters, um, which I've already Google searched, has a couple businesses, and I'm going to be like, hey, are you guys next door to this business? I'm really good friends with them. I used to go to Knoxville, Tennessee all the time. Why? Because I have that much free time? No. Because I want to rip his heart out. I want him to think he's going to get $1,000 from me, only to get absolutely nothing. Oh, by the way, Seahorse Logistics takes cryptocurrency. I love how progressive they are. Right? I mean, how cool is that? But in some ways... Walking through this ridiculousness this week, um, there is a part of me in the midst of all of this, you know, craziness, because I actually do call these people when they call me. I know I'm talking to um, a call center overseas that are trying to scam me because my Norton antivirus um, has been charged or, you know, Amazon has a fake, you know, whatever that needs to be refunded. And I call these people just to anger them because I feel like, it's better me messing with you than you taking money from really legitimately sincere people who are wanting to right the wrongs in the world. Like, I'm not prone to want to slap people, but I have to be honest with you, I might slap Russell if I could meet him. Right? And it's because there's a part of me that gets really angry at this. Because... People lose thousands of dollars. That's why they do this dumb scheme. And I want to be like, if you're this savvy to create a website, do you know you can make money making websites legitimately? But all of this was playing out in the bigger backdrop of all of this that we've been navigating. From Buffalo last week when my wife and I were on vacation and hearing about a white supremacist who walks in to a grocery store and kills 10 people simply because they don't have the same skin color as him, to the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S. releasing a report on an investigation that some of the leaders up top had withheld and had dodged uh, reporting sexual abuse cases because they didn't want to open themselves up to financial liability, to 
ultimately what happened in Texas at Robb Elementary. You see, I was originally going to do a message on generosity. I was going to talk to you about giving to build off of last week's message on finances. But about 11.05 last night, sitting there, I was like, I can't talk about generosity. I need to talk about what does it look like for us to have hope. We'll still get to generosity. It'll actually kind of work out because this set into motion a whole uh, kind of series that um, has bubbled up that will eventually talk about what the church is meant to do and what the church is meant to be. But I wanted to lean into this idea of hope in the dark. And I want to take you through a, just a, maybe a, honestly a chapter you've never read before in a book you didn't even know was in the Bible. Because it's eerily relevant. It's in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a word, if right now I brought you up on stage and asked you to spell it, you probably wouldn't have a clue, because neither would I. It's not a book most people have read, even if you've grown up in church or been around the church context, but I think Habakkuk has something to say to you and me in the midst of this last week and a half that we've been dealing with in the last two and a half years and all of the insanity that we've stared at in the midst of this nation and globally what's happened. And it starts in Habakkuk 1 with the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. Now, you should know that Habakkuk, the prophet, is um, in an Old Testament context. He's the guy who is responsible um, in a theocratic government. So this is a little different than what we were used to. We live in um, kind of a representative democracy, uh, a democracy, voice, people. Um, theocracy is a government centered on God. So theocracy is a fairly rare government structure today. It still exists in some countries around the world, um, predominantly uh, around Islam, but there are a handful of non-Islamic theocracies that have existed in the last 100 years as well. And the idea is that God is the one in control and that typically the king is a manifestation of that. Um, Israel's theocracy was that God was in control, he established the king and his, who was to kind of be his administrative voice and he would establish a prophet who was to be the spiritual voice and leader. And so Habakkuk is the second most influential kind of person in this nation. Habakkuk is responsible for delivering the spiritual message to the people. And in this book, very short, short book in fact, Habakkuk, written 2,600 years ago, is responding to this burden of being alive in a really weary time. He was exhausted with how exhausting the world was. And he writes this, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? 
See, what's happened is Habakkuk is living in a time where for a little period, it looked like things were going okay. About roughly 100 years, 150 years from prior to, to this moment, Israel, which had been one nation, had went through a civil war and had split into two. That other side of the nation had been defeated by the Assyrian Empire. There was still a group of that of those 12 original 12 tribes had had established their own nation and things were still going okay they were still a nation had not been defeated by anyone and they finally had a young king named Josiah step into uh, the throne unexpectedly as a nation things were kind of dark at that period but Josiah comes in and God kind of does something and Josiah realizes that there must be a God and he starts to lead this religious nation, this theocratic people back towards God, which is a good thing. If you're a theocracy, you should have some kind of connection with the God who is supposedly in charge of you. So he does that. There's societal reforms, there's spiritual reforms. The nation begins to transform. Things are looking up all out of this boy king who stepped in to the throne. And then doing what kings do, which is lead the army. Josiah goes to Egypt in a battle, and he's killed, which is devastating. He's young. Things are going right for the nation for the first time in a really, really long time. And now Jehoiakim is in charge. And Jehoiakim, whoo, man, he is nothing like Josiah. He is as equally bad as Josiah was good. And Jehoiakim is just driving this thing into the ditch. And not only is he just taking it, taking it bad, Jehoiakim is actually now starting to kill and to kind of take over even the spiritual side of the leadership. Jehoiakim's not okay there being other influencers in the nation. So he's just killed the prophet. He's just murdered the prophet. And Habakkuk, well, he's a prophet. So he's like, this is probably not good job security for me. Right? It's like, yeah, we're going to have to let your department go yeah, by feeding you to lions and killing you. I mean, it's not a good day to be downsized. So what does he do? This is what's going on. And so he says, God, God, how long do I call for help and you do not listen? I'm saying violence and you don't save. And then he says this, destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. Let me ask you this. If I covered up this, you would read this passage in a newspaper today. 2,600 years ago, and if you didn't know where it came from, you could swear it's in commentary on the news today. Because this is incredibly relevant. This is a human struggle. And Habakkuk is like, God, 
God, do you see what's happening? Do you see it? And God does something incredible. He responds. And Habakkuk writes, look at the nations. This is what God says back to him. And watch. And be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And it's like, God's going to do something miraculous. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians. To which anyone in this century reading that statement would be like, what? The ruthless, impetuous people. Right? If someone said, hey, I want to introduce you to someone, they're ruthless and impetuous, you would be like, hard pass. I'm good. Social calendar full. Right? No, God's like, hey, I'm going to do something. You won't believe it. Mind blown, the Babylonians who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. And then for verses that follow this, God proceeds to tell in detail what the Babylonians are going to do to this remaining nation that has spiritually forgotten God, that has a prophet who's looking up to heaven wondering if God has forgotten about them. I mean, I mean, this is like, God? Are you sure? Like, so back it responds, Oh, Lord, are, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, will we not die? Like, the Babylonians, they kill people. Oh, Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. Oh, rock, you have adorned them to punish, ordained them to punish. But your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Like, you hear, he's like, oh, Lord. He's like, my God. I mean, it's, it's like, are you sure? This tension. He's like, um, God, have you thought about that? I mean, he's like, your eyes. He's trying to remind God who he is. He's like, your eyes, they can't even look on evil. You just said you're going to send the Babylonians to destroy us because of the violence that we're doing? And he's like, God, why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up the more righteous than themselves? He's kind of being a little bold with God. He's like, God, do you see what's happening? And now it's shifted. He's like, no, no, he sees what's happening. It's actually worse than that. What are you doing? God, like, what in the world? 
are you doing? I 100% appreciate the book of Habakkuk. There are streams of Christianity who, when we're in hard, difficult places, they want to tell us that if we have enough faith, if we keep doing the right thing, that breakdown is going to lead to breakthrough, right? I feel the breakthrough is coming, except that sometimes it really don't. Sometimes you die in a car wreck and there's nothing but a sad funeral for you. I mean, like, like that's not a really good part of that song, right? Like, sometimes really good people die. I would wager, statistically speaking, between those precious souls who were grocery shopping in Buffalo and those precious souls who were being dropped off to school that day, some of them had probably been at church that Sunday before. And some of them had probably been worshiping God. They had probably been singing about his goodness and his greatness. And it didn't turn out like breakthrough for them. It didn't go well for them. It, it hurt. It was heartbreak. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes life doesn't look like what you thought it would. And Habakkuk shows us as Christians that we can look at the reality of life and that our faith is actually big enough to have doubts. And that God doesn't look at Habakkuk and see a lack of faith in his questions. Because in some circles, to ask questions like this is to look like you don't have faith. It's the, it looks like you don't really trust God. Well, you didn't get that healing because you didn't pray hard enough. Financially, things didn't work out because you didn't give enough. There's some streams of Christianity that want to lean hard in on certain passages and ignore the reality of things like this. And I'm so grateful that God invites us to have doubts in front of him. That God's not threatened by our doubts. He's not afraid of our questions and our uncertainty. He's not concerned by us not getting it. Which in weeks like this is really, really encouraging. That he's bigger than our doubts. And that can lead to hope in the dark. That these two can coexist. They can be simultaneously present. Now God doesn't answer any of his questions when he responded. God said, I'm just going to blow your mind. And Habakkuk is like, God, you did blow my mind, but in a not a good way. 
And there are some things for people of faith in this room, listening online, that I think is actually going on underneath the surface that's really helpful. Is that one, in my own personal journey, I have found that one of the best catalysts for my faith to grow is my doubts. Because what I find is my God is strong enough and he is big enough to handle my questions. And I also found that going through these kind of times and starting to wrestle with God is a lot like how you kind of repair and begin to beautify and reestablish like furniture or drywall. It's like there's some things that just aren't right in how we process and the way it looks. And so you get sandpaper and you actually have to remove some things so you can add some things intentionally. And that what Habakkuk is doing in this moment, actually, is there's a little bit of a sandpapering with his theology. He has a view of God. His box with God is not exactly right. And God's starting to sand off some of the edges through this struggle he's walking through. So, One of the things that you've, if you were here at Easter um, or you, you come regularly or you start to come regularly, you quickly discover is, but um, I love science. My undergrad was in biochem. Um, part of my journey to Christianity was quantum mechanics and reading quantum mechanics books, um, quantum physics. Um, I still regularly keep track of um, a lot of scientific kind of discoveries and reading articles and journals and um, my wife doesn't even ask me anymore what I'm reading at night because, frankly, no one cares. You know, it's like, oh, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, I'm reading about the new research um, out of Indiana or Illinois. Uh, did you know that they're drilling down closer to, like, the W? Uh, like, they're trying to really figure out, like, the mass of the W Basson, like, Boston. And it's like, this is really cool. Like, you should hear about this. And she's like, no, I'm good. Hard pass. Or, like, pictures. Um, like, hey, here's a picture from space that just happened this week. It's amazing. Look at this thing. She's like, I'm good. Which is probably why I told you at Easter, like, I demoted my family. They're not on my iPhone cover anymore. It's a picture of the sun that was taken that was, like, the biggest, most high-resolution picture ever. Like, I just completely took my family off of my phone, and now it's this amazing shot of the sun. It is so incredible. I'll gladly show it to you if you want to see it. I got pictures of my family somewhere in my phone. I'll show you those too. But the picture of the sun, holy moly, it is so amazing, right? And so um, one of the pictures, I, so I love keeping up with this stuff. And one of the pictures um, that I think is incredible is this one. And this one is a bit of like an accidental fluke. Um, NASA had a, a probe that was studying Saturn intentionally and there was kind of essentially the equivalent of a Saturn eclipse where the, the sun was going to be completely behind Saturn and um, NASA's Cassini probe was going to be present on this side and it would give us this unique kind of really dark and the light hitting the ring. So they took a series of um, 400 plus pictures. This is um, a panoramic shot that's about half a million miles wide, right? So it's like, Keep going back, no further, 
further, half a million miles to get this shot, right? Like, this is a really challenging photo to get with the family, right? You think your family's hard. And so what ends up happening is this incredible panoramic shot. But there's something cool in this photo. Um, it's the first time in human history when this photo is taken that we knew on planet Earth um, in July of 2013 that we were actually having a picture taken of our, of our planet, which is kind of cool. It's the first space selfie. Um, which was kind of cool to have a space selfie, right? And so this is the first ever known um, space selfie. We'd photobombed a couple pictures um, a few times before, but we'd never actually had an intentional space selfie where everybody's smiling at the same time. It would have been a whole lot cooler if they'd just all, like, send a blasted email, like the emergency email text thing where they can text all our phones. Like, that actually would have been a really good purpose. Like, hey, everyone, turn, look straight up right now, and smile. We'll explain it later. And everybody's just kind of doing this. I think it would have really made for a great day, but that's aside. So what happens is this amazing space selfie. I don't know what I was doing that day, but I probably wasn't smiling. And so there's me. And actually, that's me right here. That's still a little tricky, right? So you can see the glorious rings. That is Earth. Um, there we are, a little bit bigger, and it's actually, that is not even Earth. That's actually a little tiny, tiny pixel, but that's actually Earth and the moon. So that's Earth, that thing. Now, Saturn is in our solar system. Our solar system is part of the Milky Way. And to give you a scope of the size of things, if you were to shrink the sun, which is a... Right, we've talked about this. A million Earths could fit inside the sun. If you were to shrink the sun down to the size of a white blood cell, which is pretty small, to understand the size of the Milky Way, which is kind of like if, you know, the solar system's a cul-de-sac and the bigger kind of community, right, that bigger region would be the Milky Way, then that white blood cell would be the sun the continental U.S. would be the Milky Way. So, Milky Way is just one of trillions and trillions of stars and galaxies that are strewn throughout the universe. Far bigger than what we even know because we've only been able to detect about 14 billion light years distance. There's actually more beyond that. It's just we, can't, we haven't seen the pictures yet. Light hasn't gotten here. Like, and I think one of the reasons I spend so much time reading about, you know, quantum mechanics and then digging into why do things have mass and what is atoms really made of and to, to the universe and the size of, like, astrophysics and some of the research being done there is I realized that there was something as a discipline that it did internally to me that I didn't fully appreciate that after becoming a Christian, it helped me. It was because uh, periodically people would be like, you seem to like science, so how do you have faith? And I would say, well, um, it's kind of the opposite question, actually. See, I think having science and the training of science um, and liking scientific studies and research it helps me appreciate the blueprints of life, whether it's in DNA or whether it's in the universe as a whole. But I was like, having faith helps me to know the architect. And so, like, having the blueprints are great. 
But you can't have a relationship with blueprints. And if you only have the blueprints, you can only understand so much about the architect. Because you don't understand the intent and the reason. It's like, so what I love about my kind of brain's bent towards scientific thought processes and my heart's bent towards faith is that I don't suspend my brain. In fact, my brain helps me to understand the blueprints that makes me love and appreciate the architect even more. But the other thing it does is oftentimes I read those articles and I go to bed and I'm like, I don't understand about 50% of what I just read. Like that is so mind-numbing, blowing, can't even wrap my head around it. And what it does is if I can't understand the blueprints, then it breeds a humility in me not trying to figure out the architect. Doesn't mean that I suspend my questions. But it does mean that sometimes at the end of the day, I have to recognize I can't fully comprehend everything. And I can't wrap my mind around all things. And that God, quite frankly, is bigger than any box that I can mentally construct for him. He sees life and time in a scale and a scope that I can't even fathom. My mind gets blown when we have a selfie of our planet from Saturn, which is just practically down the street in our neighborhood. And we're barely a pixel. And that God who created this little tiny cul-de-sac has strewn out the entire universe. We were at the zoo yesterday and just walking around a zoo for crying out loud. And you see a giraffe with its ridiculously long neck. Did you know that giraffes have the highest blood pressure of any mammals? And that literally the blood vessels in their neck have special valves and flexibility that we don't have as humans. Why? Because every time they go to drop their head to drink water, like they should pass out or their brain should explode. But it doesn't because it's literally been orchestrated to like handle the high blood pressure. It's amazing. And then I go from that and then there's the sloth and the other exhibit. And he's just like. And I'm like, oh, you look at it, little sloppy, sloppy. I see you, little sloppy. I'm going to take a picture of you, sloppy. And then there's like the little tamarines in the same, and they're like leaping around, and one's bonding with my daughter. And I'm like, yo, dude, this ain't okay. Right? I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Then we walk over to the Slytherin house, which I see what you did there. And like the Slytherin house, you know, like I'm following, the snake is like following my finger. And I'm like, oh, you cute little snake. You just want to bite me, don't you? And then you just walk away from the zoo and you're like, look at all this incredible diversity. Wow. I don't have a box for him. He's too big for me. And if I can't understand his ways, even in the good things, then I'm not going to pretend I can understand his ways in the bad. Which I think is probably why, <coughs> at the end of the day, Habakkuk does what he does. But here's the cool part that was there all along that I don't want you to miss. 
It says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. Maybe some of us have been listening to Habakkuk and are like, yeah, Habakkuk, you tell God. What are you doing, God? What are you up to, God? The pretext, not pretext, the subtext, God, I could do a better job. It's like my kids sometimes paying attention to how I'm driving, and it's like, move over, Dad. And I'm like, you are 10 years old. You cannot drive this car. But I do that with God. Like, God, just get out of the way. You're in my, let me take over. Let a real professional drive this world. Let a real professional manage things here. And it's like, Habakkuk did not originate the book. God started the conversation. God started this thing, which I think for us is incredibly inspiring. Some of us are so afraid to say certain things to him or to ask him questions, and yet the whole book was not Habakkuk bringing his complaints to God. It was God saying, Habakkuk, let's talk. What's on your mind? God was the originator and the pursuer of all the complaints. And all the conversation that would flow out of Habakkuk's mind. And yet, we know this. Which is, in some ways, this is why I think Habakkuk 2 starts with this. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give this complaint. Habakkuk, at the end of chapter 1, there is no solution. God does not even answer his questions that he's asking. Habakkuk just stands there after he's given his response to God. What are you doing? And he stands. And there's something profound about that. He's like, God, I don't know what's happening. But I still know who is above all over what's happening. So I'm just going to stand here. Some of us have walked through tragedy in our life. Some of us have dealt with grief. And what we did was the exact opposite of Habakkuk. We ran away from God. We assumed God couldn't handle our questions, so we never even brought them to him. And the God of Habakkuk is the same God of today. He's like, bring them to me. I'm big enough to handle you and your questions. And Habakkuk understood that enough that he stood. And fortunately for us, God would continue the conversation over the next two chapters. And I would say that what we'll look at through the book of Habakkuk doesn't even give a full answer to ultimately what we know as Christians or people who've ever been exposed to the Christian message. That we somehow recognize that God didn't just originate, didn't just prompt this conversation with Habakkuk, he actually pursued you and me too. That he didn't stay distant, but that selfie of earth so far out there that's just a tiny piece in this grand thing, the God who made that grand thing stepped into that tiny thing and chased after you and me in our imperfection, in our moments where we didn't want to be loved. I mean, I have a toddler, and I feel like so much of toddler parenting is is demonstrating what love looks like, which is chasing after people who's running away from you. And that's all my son does. No! And he runs away. I mean, 
I have a little girl who's on the precipice of teenage years. Same thing. And what does love look like? It's running after them. And letting them understand in a physical, relational, emotional way that there's no place you can go that can run away from my love for you. And this is what God does through Jesus. There's no place you can go that can run away from my love for you. Even if you go to distant places, even if you go to places where you think you've done so much that I can never make it there, he does it through the cross. And in weeks of tragedy and heartbreak, where we're looking and we're angry and we're mad and we're sad and we're frustrated because we don't understand what's happening in our nation and in this world, that the, the beauty and the hope of Christianity is that the best person who has ever lived on planet Earth, period, had the worst possible thing to ever happen to him on the cross. You want to talk about the innocence. Jesus is the only innocent, and he was put through a sham trial where the police, the, the structures of the day, committed intentional injustice, and they murdered him. And it was hor horrible. If you've ever studied what a crucifixion does, horrible. And yet, we celebrate that moment as Christians every year. And we sing about it every single week. Because we understand our God is so big that he's so beyond the box that we have that he was able to take the worst moment in human history and use it to pave the way for all of humans to be redeemed and restored. That he's a God who can take even the worst things that have ever happened to you and he can redeem them too. That's the beauty of the Christian message. And if you're wrestling with faith or you're wrestling with what's happening, I just want to encourage you that there, in fact, can be hope in the dark. And that hope has a name, and his name is Jesus. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll keep pressing into what's going on and what do we do with it and how do we respond to it? Not just in the grand kind of global national news, but also in our personal lives too. But the first step today is no simple answers, is to say, yeah, it sucks. And life sometimes sucks. But it's to point you to that place where Habakkuk could stand with a little bit of trust saying, maybe God, you're bigger than I think you are. And like what I see happen with my toddler all the time, he falls and he gets hurt. He's got a boo-boo. And he instantly cries out, not for me, but for mama. And his little boo-boo or his little bloody lip, whatever it may be, he'll crawl into my wife's lap. She'll pick him up. She'll hold him tight. She'll say, I love you, buddy. It's going to be okay. She doesn't stop the bleeding. She doesn't take away the pain, but somehow her love changes everything. And I think those moments that you and I have tasted as children to our parents or our grandparents or our aunts or uncles 
or our guardians, those moments are whispers of what it is like and what heaven desires for it to be like for you and me. To say, come up, my child. Let me hold you. Experience the reckless love that I have that broke through the darkness, that transversed the entire universe to come after you. To not just say with words, but to demonstrate in deeds how deep, how wide, how high my love is for you. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are a good and gracious God who knows and sees everything. That you chase after us. That you pursue us. That your love is reckless for us. There's no shadow. There's no mountain. There's no place. Father, I pray for some who are here today listening to this message or maybe even in the course during the week on the podcast that right now in their heart, in their lives is simply the whisper that they need to turn to you and to turn back to you. And I pray that they would hear in your whisper your love your grace, your mercy that's bigger than any guilt or shame that they may bring with them, that's stronger and more powerful than any struggle that they may have or any chain that may keep them held, and that they would find that you're a God who is still in the business of redeeming and restoring and transforming our lives for others of us who've already taken that step of faith in you, Jesus. I pray that in our grief today that we would experience your love, your healing, holding power, your comforting touch as we're reminded of your great love. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand. Um, Today we're going to close out with a song that's simply a declaration of his love and a declaration of his power and his pursuit of you and me. And I want to encourage you, for you, for the myriad of victims over the last week and a half, over just the last couple years and all that we've navigated, maybe for someone you know personally who's walking through, that you would maybe even sing on behalf of them this song. That somehow in ways that we can't even understand that God would make it clear that there is a reckless pursuing love that he has for them too. And for some of you that you would just receive these words as words not sung by these incredibly beautiful, awesome people. But these would be words that come from God himself to you of his love for you. Let's sing.